You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. Romans chapter 11, verse 11. Why don't we stand? We're going to read through uh, half of the chapter here. And then dive into what God wants to show us. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, this is, he's speaking of Israel, through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches." And if some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, as he he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written... The deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable for as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience. Even so, these also have now been disobedient that through the mercy shown you, they may also obtain mercy for God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. 
And that's our prayer this morning. As we close in that prayer, that's our prayer. For of him and to him and through him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. In chapter 11, Paul gives us four proofs to show us that God has not cast away his people Israel. He is not finished with Israel. And in this chapter, verse 1, he showed us the personal proof from his own personal testimony. I'm a Jew. In saving me, God saved a Jew. In using me, God uses a Jew. God saves and uses Jews. Even today, there's a remnant we've been studying. As the second argument was the historical proof from the life of Elijah, from the life of Isaiah, from the testimony of David. In verses 2 through 10, we've studied And then today we'll look at the dispensational proof as well as the scriptural proof that God is not done with Israel. Verses 1 through 24 here can all be summarized that God has not rejected Israel, that there's a current remnant, that there's a rebound blessing we'll see today, and that one day there will be a future revival in the nation of Israel, a revival among the Jews. So let's get into the dispensational proof, the era that we're in of the church age. And one day the era where the church age will be removed and a a revival will happen among the Jews. This would be also known as the rebound blessing age that we're living in. Verse 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, Salvation has come to the Gentiles. Let me real quickly read to you the paraphrase from the New Living Translation. Did God's people stumble and fall beyond recovery? Of course not. They were disobedient, so God made salvation available to the Gentiles. But he wanted his own people to become jealous and to claim it back for themselves. Have God's people stumbled and failed? And we read about their failings in the Old Testament. We read about their failings when they demanded the crucifixion of the Messiah and they shouted out to Pontius Pilate who found Jesus to be innocent and they said, you crucify him, give us a murderer in place of this guy who claims to be our king and let his blood be upon our head and upon our children's head. In that, they stumbled and they sinned and they offended God. But has this offense been to a state of being beyond recovery? Paul says emphatically, certainly not, exclamation point. God has a sovereign plan in the meta-narrative of scripture to provoke his people of Israel to jealousy to stimulate them and to excite rivalry. He wants to shock them into belief through this drastic reality of the Gentiles, the pagans, the heathens, the barbarians, the Rory Rogers, the Blaine Jensen's, the Don Chafees coming to Christ. And when the Jews see that, they go, goodness gracious, (laughs) who is this God? What great love, what great grace. And those guys have it. Those guys are partaking in it. I am jealous. I'm jealous. Now we hear that and we go, oh, that's wrong. 
It's wrong to be jealous. I remember hearing of Oprah Winfrey, hearing that our God is a jealous God. And she was dumbfounded with that. And she protested much. Jealousy is wrong. Well, jealousy is wrong if you're jealous for something that is not yours. For a man to be jealous over another man's wife, that is wrong. That is covetousness. That's adultery of the heart. And it's called sin. But for a man to be jealous over his wife, and want his wife's affection and his wife's attention and his wife's love. That's right. That's natural. That's what this relationship was created to be. And our God is a jealous God. He is jealous for his bride. And it is not sinful. To say that he is sinful is to be a blasphemer. Now the gospel came to Israel second, third, or first first. The gospel came to Israel first, as Jesus said to the Syrophoenician woman as she begged to be healed. She said, or he said to her, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And he's kind of provoking her to some kind of reaction where she cries out, oh, even the little puppies eat the crumbs falling underneath the table. We want scraps of the blessing. At least God, this Gentile woman cries out. But Jesus, in provoking her, says a truthful statement. First of all, I've been sent to the lost sheep of Israel, to the gospel going to them first. As Romans says in uh, 1.16 here, that I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God into salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and then also for the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 13, verses 46 through 48, Paul and Barnabas' testimony of their witnessing, they're bold to the Jews, and they say it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, but since you reject it and you judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn now to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I've set you as a light to the Gentiles. Now, those are non-Jews that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and they glorified the word of the Lord and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. When the Gentiles heard that God, the God of the Jews, was gracious and loving and was turning now to them and giving them an opportunity for salvation, they were overjoyed. They were glad. They couldn't believe this good news. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. In another instance in the book of Acts, chapter 18, verse 6, the Jews opposed the Christian missionaries and they blasphemed God. Paul then would shake his garments and say to them, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I go to the Gentiles. In another instance where the Jews are contrary to the gospel, they oppose the gospel, and they especially oppose the gospel going to the Gentiles, Paul says to them, hey, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. You can almost see him lifting up his hands as they're rejecting him, and they will hear it as he gets hit in the face. And finally, the last chapter we were in in Romans 10, verse 19 Paul says, did Israel not know? Way back in their early days, Moses prophesied to them saying, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not even a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. 
You know, all of us Oregonians, all of us Crick Countyites, you know, or lights or however we say that. I'm kind of new around here. You know, as we come to know Jesus as fools, as barbarians, as pagans, the Jews see that and they see a depth of intimacy with the creator of the universe, with the God of the Jews. Man, they will be moved to anger. They will be moved to jealousy. They will be moved to rivalry by the barbarians. Now, Israel, Paul is saying, did not experience a permanent fall, but a stumbling by a tripping up. And it serves two divine, sovereign purposes of God. In the last three chapters, we've been looking at God's divinity, his sovereignty, his vast knowledge, his vast foreknowledge, his vast purposes, and his vast election. And in his sovereignty, in his foreknowledge, in his understanding of the grand scheme of things from Genesis through Revelation, Israel rejecting and stumbling fulfills two main purposes. Number one, it fulfills salvation, moving over and saving the rest of the world, saving the Gentiles. And we praise God for that. We get excited for that here in Prineville to know that Rory, you know, a Klamath County boy from near Bonanza, you know, like a hayseed, you know, how would he ever hear the gospel? Man, because the Jews rejected and God moved and sent the good news out to the Gentiles. Secondly, this divine purpose is that in that salvation coming to the Gentiles, God is so good, he's so smart, he knows that will provoke unbelieving Israel towards jealousy. As Douglas Moo says in his commentary, as the Jews see the Gentiles enjoying messianic blessings promised first of all to them, they will want those blessings back for themselves. These blessings that Jesus spoke of in Luke chapter 4, and I didn't write it up there, and it's just kind of been burning on my heart, and I never got to entering it into the projection system. As Jesus stands up in the synagogues in Nazareth, and he reads out of the prophet Isaiah, and he says in 4.18 of Luke, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is a messianic blessing and privilege and promise because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and the gospel's gone to the poor in Oregon and to uh, heal the brokenhearted and there are brokenhearted being healed in Prineville and to proclaim liberty to the captives and there are meth addicts and sex addicts and alcoholics and sorcerers and adulterers being healed here in Prineville as the liberty is spread out there to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind. It's happening here. And to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. It's happening here by the power and by the spirit of God. And as Israel sees it, as the Jews see it, as the Oregon Jews see it, They are provoked to jealousy saying, I want that. Where is the freedom of my oppression? Where is the sight to my blindness? Where is the freedom to my captivity? Where is the gospel being preached to my poverty? I want what they have. I want what they're hearing. I'm jealous. I'm jealous. Verse 12, if their fall is riches for the world, and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? How much more this this fullness of Israel? 
in Paul saying that Israel will one day be full, he's suggesting that the present defeat of Israel in their unbelief, which currently has Israel numerically reduced to near nothing, to a small remnant. One day, the small remnant will be reversed by the addition of a greater, a far greater number, a revival, as we like to put it. This is Israel's destined fullness. And we're going to plunge the depth of that fullness throughout the rest of this chapter. Paul uses this uh, this familiar how much more logic or the logic of the greater to the lesser, the lesser to the greater. It goes both ways. As he says, okay, on the small end of the scale, they fall, they sin, they reject God. You think the whole earth would go up in an atomic bomb, you know, a divine bomb or something, but it doesn't. Rather, the gospel goes out and other people get saved. The rest of the world gets saved. And that's on the bad end of things. What about on the good end of things with God's people? When there's a revival in Israel, when all Israel is saved, what's going to happen then? Fullness and richness to the whole world. Paul is trying to get across to the Roman Gentile Christians and to the Prineville Gentile Christians the significance of their personal walk in Israel's one day restoration and divine favor. Are you catching it? Are you catching it? Your depth and intimacy with the Christ will provoke Israel to a great depth and intimacy with Christ. And if if it's good on this end, it's going to be fantastic on that end. Are you catching it? Are you catching it? Are you walking in that depth of relationship today? May the Holy Spirit convict you in that level of depth. Verse 13, I speak to you Gentiles. And he's speaking to us today. Inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. He spoke to the Rome, speaks to the Roman believers that are kind of boasting, we'll see in verse 18, that Paul had left his ministry to the Jews and was now all about them. He was a Gentile apostle now. And Paul says, hey, I am a Gentile apostle. That is true. That's what I've been called to. But he says, I take that ministry to you guys and I blow it up. I zoom it up. I put extra effort into it. I put extra prayer into it. I put extra zeal into it. Why? So that even more of that blessing will will provoke Israel to envy. Verse 14, if by any means I could provoke them to jealousy, who are my flesh, and, and save some of them. There is a significant impact in his ministry to Israel through his ministry with the Gentiles. New Living Translation. This paraphrase says, I lay great stress on this. For I want to find a way to make the Jews want what you Gentiles have. That in that way, I might save some of them. He's trying to provoke them. He's trying to harass them. And we do that, you know, remember those days with your your brothers or your sisters, you know, and that provoking, kind of digging them in the ribs with your finger. It's the whole like, I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. Ah, you know. And that's what Paul's doing. You don't want it. I'm not touching you with it. I'm not, but I'm just holding it right out there. He's harassing the Jews by going to the Gentiles. He's provoking them to jealousy. This feeling of jealous envy. He wants the green-eyed monster 
to be alive and well in the hearts of the Jews. But notice Paul's tact in reaching the lost. Notice how shrewd he is. Do we even begin to think like this about how to reach the lost and save? Would we ever have a concept like this? Man, I want them to be saved so bad that I'm going to go over here and I'm going to save these people so that they'll get... I mean, there's tact there. There's thought in it. There's understanding of what God's plan is. And may we be so in tune with the word of God that we hear the Lord in great tact and how to reach the lost in our community and the lost in our workplace and the tact in reaching our children with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 15, for if their being cast away is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Again, the lesser to the greater argument. If they're being casting away, and, and note here, God's initiative in the whole process and his sovereignty in the whole process. There's a casting away, but that equals reconciliation to all the Gentile nations. But then one day there will be an acceptance. What will that mean? But life from the dead. What will that mean except resurrection life to the whole world? Now to the individual Jew... You know, the Joshua's and the Jacob's and the Abraham's with, you know, the yarmulkes on over in Israel. This means to them, they will receive spiritual life in replacement of spiritual death. Take it onto a broader scale. The nation of Israel getting saved means the rebirth of the nation spiritually. The rebirth of the whole glorified millennial kingdom of God. It's going to happen one day and it's going to be spectacular. But it doesn't even stop at Abraham. It doesn't even stop on the broader scale of the nation itself and that revival there. It's going to spread forth with blessings and abundance and fullness to the whole entire world, to creation. There will be an even greater uh, freedom from slavery to corruption into this freedom of glory, being children of God. And finally, this restoration of Israel, some have, uh, have seen it as a eschatological viewpoint, an end times viewpoint, that it will mean the end. It'll mean the day of the Lord. It'll mean the resurrection of the dead, uh, some for judgment and some for everlasting life. But mark this from Romans chapter 11, and it is exciting, and we just can't even begin to fathom. It's good to meditate on it. It's good to come to Romans 11, or we wouldn't really think about it. One day, there will be revival in Israel. There will be Jews for Jesus on a great, grand scale, busting out Tomlin, you know, in Hebrew. It's going to be great. Chris Tomlin, he's a worship leader. You might not know him. For if the first fruit is holy, verse 16, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So a few illustrations are being used here. First of all, we have this illustration and concept of the first fruit sacrifice that we see in the Old Testament. Uh, in Numbers chapter 15, you read of this, that as you would bring in wheat from the field and just the raw produce, the raw cereal, the raw granary, you would set some of it aside as a gift to the Lord. You would ground the flour and you would make the oil and you would set that aside as a gift to the Lord. And if that first raw 
produce or raw product is the beginning of the sacrifice. And in, and in the analogy here, that represents the patriarchs and the forefathers. They were that first fruits, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the prophets, uh, you know, those guys, they are the first fruits. And if they are holy, then the bread that is baked from it, the bread that, you know, the oil goes into and the grain goes into, it also is holy. It also is set apart to the Lord. It also is special to the Lord. If the original is holy, then the peace from it is holy also. The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, convey a spiritual blessing to the descendants who are recipients of the promises of God. Their holiness consists in their having been set apart for God in history. Now remember, we've been learning from chapters 9 through 11 that it's not about your race. It's still about grace. It's still about God's sovereign election. And it, but what we see here, in a similar way that I'm going to have fond feelings toward an old high school buddy's child, as, you know, as you know, my, my buddy Chad Grogan, that you guys know is a high school friend of mine, he's got Cade and Luke and, and Ellie, and I've got fond feelings towards them because I have a history with Chad. So special feelings towards his kid in the same way, uh, and you know, I love your kids too. Don't get me wrong. There's just that special connection there. God is saying, I love the Gentiles, but I have this special history with the Jews and I have special feelings towards the children of the Jews and I'm working out a grand plan, a scheme, if you will. It is rigged for them to come to know me, for them to love me, for them to be passionate about me. The same idea of this, you know, uh, original uh, fruit, you know, coming and transposing into uh, similar traits in the offering from it. We see in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, where Paul says on a scale of sin here, he says, don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? You know, you take the, the big piece of it, and if there's leaven in it, you're going to take, and you go make something from that, it's going to have the same characteristics, the same DNA, if you will, as the original. Okay, so that's the idea kind of of the, the wheat and the grain sacrifice, the first fruits bread type offering. And then we get into another picture for us in verse 17. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. And let's pause there real quick to just grasp what Paul's talking about. He, he then moves to an example from horticulture being used. And he speaks of an olive tree, which in scripture is always a picture of the nation of Israel. And he used just horticulture and the science of grafting in other trees into the main tree. And I have a special memory from this because a couple of years ago, my Aunt Pam had horrible leukemia. It was like stage four. And uh, my mom was called upon to be a, a bone marrow donor uh, for my Aunt Pam. And so my, uh, my mom went in and she gave these stem cells and things and went through the whole process and, uh, and my aunt, in a sense, received part of my mom, you know, and uh, blood brothers, blood sisters, if you will. But something really special my uncle did, he, he recognized this 
interesting transplant taking place, this interesting graphing taking place. And he went down to a greenhouse and he had a fruit salad tree made for my mom to thank her for giving her blood, her bone marrow to my aunt. So there should be a picture of it. I had my mom send a picture uh, to you guys this morning from her phone of this fruit salad tree. Isn't that a great idea? I love fruit salad. It's always been a big part of our family. Uh, In this tree, you have plums that grow. You have peaches that grow. You have nectarines and apricots that grow. Don't you want one? (laughs) I want one too. I don't know if it'll grow down here. In the tree of Israel, this pure olive tree, Branches were broken off because of unbelief. Jews were taken off of the root of the patriarchs in the history of Israel. And then over here, you've got this wild, scraggly olive tree named Rory, you know, named the Rogers. And a branch was taken off of that wild olive tree, and it was brought over. And with the care of the creator, Rory was grafted in to the root and the fatness of Israel. As Jesus says, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and it will be given to a nation bearing fruits of it. You see there that now Rory, and if you are a Gentile Christian, you enter your name and we partake of what Paul calls the root and the fatness of the olive tree. Like I needed any more fatness, right? Uh, Sovereignly, that's what God calls it. And it speaks of richness and oiliness, which was just wealth to the Jews. It speaks of plumpness through repletion. That is the state of being satisfactory, full, and unable to take on any more. It's the Thanksgiving idea. I've eaten all I can eat, and I can eat no more. When you, as a Gentile, as a non-Jew, come to Jesus as he calls you and beckons you and convicts you of your sin and shows you his righteousness and convicts you for your need of a savior. And when you respond to that calling and receive into your heart the salvation provided by Jesus Christ, the washing and cleansing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit, where you're born again, you are grafted in that moment into the root, into the fatness, into the plumpness, into the fullness of what God had destined for his chosen people, Israel. We're partakers of his promise through the gospel, the book of Ephesians says. But there's a warning now to us as we enjoy that analogy as we enjoy that picture of being grafted in there's a warning to us in verse 18 do not boast against the branches but if you do boast remember that you do not support the root but the root supports you This warning comes to Gentiles first of all because it's not like we belong there in the first place We were adopted in. We were brought in. And so we have no opportunity or no reason to boast against the Jews that were broken and snapped off. So often, boasting turns into bragging. It becomes sinful so quickly. And we see that when we have young children. 
and we have birthday parties for them. You know, Lainey turned uh, two, uh, three this week, I think that was, but yeah, three on Tuesday, and a uh, little McDonald's birthday party for you, you know, and getting her presents, and you've seen this with your kids. When kids in their birthday parties, they get these presents, and they open them up, and they're so excited, right? They're rejoicing, and that rejoicing very quickly becomes sinful and turns into bragging. Look what I got. You don't have one. I have one, but you don't have one. I just want to make sure you know that you don't have one, and I'm not going to share with you. Well, then why did you invite me to your birthday party? I don't know. I just wanted to make you jealous or something, but you're not getting any of this action. So quickly, our boasting, it turns into sin, and it's the same case with our salvation. We begin to think, you know what? I have uh, been elected. I've been, you know, they've rejected Jesus. I've been brought in. God must like me. He must not like them. He must be done with them. We've replaced them completely and and it just becomes sinful. There's a lack of understanding. We have no natural claims on the promises of God. We're a wild olive tree that by grace has been grafted in. You will say, verse 19, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, well played, touche, Paul says. But he counters that because of unbelief, they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. The second reason why we have no reason to boast and the second reason why there is a uh, a warning to us Gentile believers is because as Gentiles, we stood under divine judgment. We had no reason to be saved, no reason to enter into eternity. It was simply by grace through faith. And we've all seen it, you know, if you've ever worked with youth and middle schoolers, you get these young zealots and and young kind of know-it-all kids, and they begin to kind of pick on the others, or or they, you know, they, they try to analyze other people's actions, but in their analyzing, they become haughty and prideful and boastful, and you have to correct them. You have to correct them in their zeal. They become high-minded as the word haughty there is used. Guys, as Christians, we are called to be called the opposite of haughty. We're called to be lowly-minded, as Philippians 2. The Greeks hated that. They hated that, you know, Paul would say, be lowly-minded. That meant humble-minded. That meant, uh, you know, humble rather than prideful. He said, don't be haughty, but fear. Fear is actually a good thing when you look at it from a biblical standpoint. It speaks of a healthy reverence. As Douglas Moo says, the biblical concept of fear combines a reverential aspect for the majesty and the glory of God with a healthy concern to continue and live out of the grace of God. A healthy reverential respect for his majesty and a concern to live in his grace. He says to the Gentiles, hey, you're right, but you remember you were brought in by faith, by God's gracious sovereign election and nothing of yourself. So don't boast or brag against the branches that were broken off. Well, what does that have to do with me? Guys, we live in America and we live in an area that, you know, hates Israel. 
Many people want to turn away from their support of Israel. And many Christians are moving to turn away from supporting Israel because they believe that the church has replaced Israel. You guys, they have a faulty view of Romans 9, Israel's past and God's sovereign election of them. In Romans 10, Israel's present state of rejection. And then they have a definite misunderstanding of Romans chapter 11, God's future for Israel. And so there's a warning to us. We got to beware lest unbelief creep in, lest pride creep in, lest haughtiness creep in. Unbelief always stems from pride. If your attitude is one of pride and arrogance, watch out. That's what Paul is saying here. Don't be haughty, but fear. Be reverent for God's majesty and continue to live out the grace of God. Verse 21 Here's the fear aspect. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Does that strike any sort of fear into your heart? If God doesn't spare those that were connected to the root, those that were connected to the fatness, those that had the giving of the law, the written word given to them, the prophets speaking directly to them, they followed the pillar of cloud around by day and the pillar of fire around by night. They had the temple. They were in the presence of the Shekinah. The incense filled the temple, the glory. And those very people began to be haughty and they fell away. They stumble. The Phillips paraphrase here, we have it for you on the screen. You may make the natural retort, but the branches were broken off to make room for my grafting. It wasn't quite like that. They lost their position because they failed to believe. You only maintain yours because you do believe. The situation does not call for conceit, but for a certain wholesome fear. If God removed the natural branches for a good reason, take care that you don't give him the same reason for removing you. Are you giving him the same reason? Have you gotten haughty? And you might be haughty over Israel and they rejected and there's the the very religious Orthodox Jews that are cruel to their wives and are very legalistic and and we've replaced them. We who walk by grace, we're better than them. (laughs) Doesn't sound very gracious, does it? And then there's the secular Jews that they don't even know what their nation believes. We're better than them. I know their history better than they do. Don't be haughty. Don't give God a reason to remove you either. You remember that it's by grace. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Verse 22, consider and all this being considered, consider the goodness and severity of God. On those who fell, severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. The word therefore there, it, asks, it says, go look back, look backwards, see what's it, what it's there for. Understanding God's grace and his workings with Israel and his grafting of you in because of their rejection and because of their unbelief. Understand that God is good and severe. And contemplate that, know it, meditate upon it, think about his kindness towards you. That while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. That is kindness. While you were in rebellion against him, while you were enmity with him, that is war. You were war with him. 
he died for you and sent the Spirit to convict you of your sin and to point you towards the cross, to point you towards Jesus. He is good, is he not? And think of all the ways that God has reached out to you, the people that he sent across your path, that day that you happened to open up your Bible and you read and those words were implanted into your heart. You received with meekness the implanted word and that word burned in your heart. Do you remember that day when the Lord spoke to you, when those people spoke to you? That is his kindness. That is his goodness. We love to think about his goodness, but we don't often think about his severity. When we think of his severity, it puts in us a reverence. It puts in us a good, healthy fear. When we look at God's strict justice, his decisiveness, his anger against sin, his rigor against stomping out sin, stomping out rebellion, it's what he does. It's what he's done. And he continues to do it today. He hates sin. He knows sin hurts you. And while he loves you, he knows that you are a big part of that sin. You are an enormous factor to that sin. And if you will continue in that sin, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath on the day of wrath, as Romans 2, 4, and 5 says. As Paul says there in Romans 2, he says, Do you despise God's riches and his goodness, his forbearance, his patience, his long-suffering? Don't you know that his goodness leads you to repentance and to turn from your sin? That's the goodness. We consider that. But then we also consider his severity. But in accordance to your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath, and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. This was written to the Romans. This was written to the church in Rome. Do you hate God's goodness, his patience, his mercy, his long suffering by continuing in rebellion, in self-righteousness, in pride, and in all pagan forms of immorality, adultery, lust, immorality, idolatry? You're treasuring up for yourselves his wrath, his outpouring of displeasure, on that day of wrath. He hates sin. He absolutely destroys sin, this sin that is bad to you. But if you continue in his goodness, there is life. There is life and there is that riches, richness that we've spoken of. In Acts 11 and in Acts 14, when Paul would leave a city, he would exhort that city, all right, the seed has been planted, I must move on, I've got to be going now. Continue in the things that you have learned. Continue, it says that he exhorts them with purpose of heart that they would continue with the Lord. Continue in the faith, even through suffering. You've got to continue. It's not enough to just, you know, go to a Billy Graham crusade and get all worked up and get all emotional and raise your hand and go down to the front and make some sort of lip service to God, but then immediately leave that Billy Graham ceremony and live the rest of your life in blatant rebellion and sin against God. And to always go back to that, well, there was that crusade. Guys, that is, that is a dangerous place. And all throughout the scripture, we're warned of the danger of falling away, of apostasy. A dangerous place indeed. We must continue with the Lord. As Hebrews 3, 6 says, that Christ, 
as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. You want to be part of Jesus's house? Hold fast, cling to, don't let go of the confidence in this hope all the way to the end. We know that that holding on to, it's not an act of ourselves, but it's an act that comes, the strength comes by just being in close relation with Jesus. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but there's another verse that follows it. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Who puts that firm grip there? It's God. And as you abide in the vine, you as a branch will be strong. Hebrews again says in chapter 10, verse 23, let's hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful. You jump down to verse 38 in Hebrews 10. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back and doesn't continue, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Man, I hope I can say that today of our church. We are not of those who draw back. We are not of those who get haughty and prideful and puffed up and forget that we're saved by grace. We are not of those who look down on other sinners as if we were righteous and that's what's gained us salvation and favor of God. We are those that realize we've been saved by unmerited favor of God. And by just believing in him, we've, we've partaken of that richness and that fatness. We need to continue. Let's look at verse 23. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, they'll be grafted in. For God's able to graft them in again. There's two different types of continuing. Continue with the Lord, but stop continuing in unbelief. And we hope that the Jews do that. And we know one day they will. Verse 24, for if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? Gentiles, don't be proud don't, you know, we're wrong in our assumptions and in our pride. We, we assume wrong conclusions. God's not done with Israel. Don't come to that wrong conclusion. The Jews were broken off because they didn't believe. Don't you fall into that as well? That's where anti-Semitism creeps in. As the great Roman commentator Leon Morris said, it's a matter for profound regret that just as Israel refused to accept the salvation when it was offered to them, so the Gentiles have all too often refused to make Israel envious. Instead of showing to God's ancient people the attractiveness of the Christian way, Christians have characteristically treated the Jews with hatred, prejudice, persecution, malice, and all uncharitableness or unloveliness. Christians should not take this passage calmly. We are warned against anti-Semitism that stems from pride. Stems from pride. What is taught here gives us a remedy for our pride. It puts us in our place. I went to coffee yesterday with Aaron Mapes and we were just talking about this passage 
And I was talking with him about the, the concept of us provoking the Jews to jealousy. Now, if we had an Orthodox Jew come over from Jerusalem and for some crazy reason visit Prineville, I'm sure it's happened before at some point, okay? And, you know, he's walking along and for some reason he comes in here. Would he be provoked to jealousy by you? Let's say he's sitting behind you or he's sitting next to you. You, you shook his hand, you introduced yourself to him. Would he be provoked to jealousy? Well, you might say, well, I'm pretty religious. Let me tell you this. You don't hold a candle to the Jews when it comes to religion. The Orthodox, you're nothing. You got nothing. I'm sorry. The root and the fatness, you read the Old Testament, they were very zealous. They've got their heritage. They've got their sacrament. They've got their roles and their duties within the temple and what they had. How would your life, and I'm talking to you, to everybody, to you, to me, think about you right now. How are you provoking Israel to jealousy? How are we doing our part as America to, to, to point Jews towards the Messiah? What is your intimacy with Christ? What is your worship factor with Christ? Man, we had amazing songs today with, which dealt with all of this. You know, as, as the priest would minister in the temple and swing the incense around and fill the temple with the incense and the aromas of the sacrifice and the glory and the Shekinah. Is that happening at Calvary Chapel of Crick County during our worship time? Or would the priest who swung the incense, you know, would he smell nothing here? Would the spiritual fragrance of our offerings and of our worship Make him go, man, I want that. Man, I want that. Are you operating in the spiritual gifts that have been given you? Do you even care that God desires to give you spiritual gifts? Something that would be going to the Jews, but now has come to you. What about the power of the Holy Spirit and the boldness to be witnesses? That was the Jews' job in the Old Testament, to be witnesses to the whole world, but they never did it. Are you doing that? That is our calling as Christians. Would they see you as a witness and be jealous saying, that was my job and I want it back? Is there anything of your life and in my life that would provoke a Jew to jealousy? God change us. God work a work in us of the Holy Spirit. Closing here, verse 25 I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel and to the fullness of the Gentiles of command. Man, we are told by Paul in many different ways in Scripture not to be ignorant of something. And you know what? Whenever we're told not to be ignorant by Paul, those are always the things we're the most ignorant in. We're ignorant of God's righteousness, Romans 10.3 says, and we seek to establish our own righteousness instead. We're ignorant of, of Christ's Coming and the comfort that comes from that, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 2 Peter 3 8. We're ignorant of spiritual gifts as a church. And Paul says, My brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning spiritual gifts. We're ignorant of the Old Testament and the history from the Old Testament. And we're told in 1 Corinthians 10, Brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant of the experiences of the fathers, that these things happen to be our examples. 
We don't know who Elijah is. We don't know who Joshua is. We don't know who Isaiah is. We don't know who the kings are. We're ignorant of God's saving dealings with the Gentiles in Israel. This fullness of the Gentiles, one day it will come in. As the New Living Translation says, some of the Jews have hard hearts, but this will last only until the complete numbers of the Gentiles come to Christ. Man, maybe you're that Gentile. Actually, biblically, we see in Revelation that there will be Gentiles being saved, but there will come a moment when that last Gentile is saved, the fullness of the Gentile comes in and then enters in this ministry to the Jews. And one day, verse 26, all Israel will be saved. The church age ends, the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And there, if you're reading with me, verse 26, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away all ungodliness from Jacob. The scriptural proof that God is not done with Israel is that the prophets in Isaiah and in Joel and Zechariah and Micah all prophesy one day there will be a national revival. And Israel, as Daniel says, will have an end of transgressions. They will be done with sin. They will make reconciliation for iniquity. They will bring in everlasting righteousness. This, all the prophecies will be fulfilled to seal up visions in prophecy. And Messiah will be anointed as the Jews, as the most holy Christ. That's going to happen one day. Zechariah tells, it, tells us that it's going to happen during the second coming when Jesus comes back in the clouds on white horses with the saints and he's going to smite all the enemies of Israel with the words from his mouth and all Israel will look on him in his glory and Zechariah tells us they will look on him whom they pierced and they will mourn like they would mourn for the loss of their only son. And they will go home from this time of being with their Messiah and they will weep with their children that they were part of massacring their Messiah, of slaughtering their Messiah. That day is going to come. They will be forgiven of their sins. The end of iniquity will take place. As verse 27 says, this is my covenant when I, uh, with them when I take away their sins. As part of the new covenant of Jeremiah 31 through 34 that I will forgive their iniquity in this new covenant. And their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Let's read through the rest of the chapter concerning the gospel, their enemies for your sake, the persecuting Christians, but concerning election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the sake of the promises to the forefathers. And the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable to both the Jews and the Gentiles. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet now you've obtained mercy through their disobedience. Even so, these also have now been disobedient that through the mercy shown you, they will obtain mercy. God is in control. God's in control of their disobedience. He's in control of our obedience and how that provokes them to obedience eventually one day. Oh, the depth. And this is where all of this theology, you guys, you've been learning doctrine today. All of this theology, that's just the studying of God and his truths. One man once said, theology moves us to doxology. That's praise. In fact, praise team, come on up. 
Theology provokes us and moves us to praise. Does anyone want to praise after looking at God's sovereign plan with the Jews and their rejection and the Gentiles and their salvation? And then the Gentiles are provoking them to jealousy and one day they'll get saved. And then once they're saved, fullness and richness and fullness comes to the whole entire world on a greater scale than ever has been seen before. And yeah, all right. And Paul, in, in studying this, he just, he just starts singing. I mean, he just starts writing out a, a little worship song that he wrote. And he says this, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who could have been his counselor to think of all this and to figure it all out for the end of the beginning? Or who's first given to him that he should pay him back? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Let's close our Bibles and let's just move into worship right now. Let's move, be moved by the spirit and by theology and by doctrine. Let's, let's allow the spirit to move us to worship. For the non-believer who's here today, there's good news for you. If you hear the calling of the Holy Spirit, he's convicting you of all of your sins that you've ever done. By his grace, he's brought you here today that you could hear the truth spoken in love. You could hear of your sins and you could turn from your sins. Turn from your sins today. Embrace the living God who poured himself out as a sacrifice for your sin, that his blood could wash away every iniquity, every sin you've ever committed. Just right now where you're at, by faith in God's gracious provision, you can be saved. You can be born again and just say, Jesus, I want that. Jesus, I need that. I want to be saved. For the Christian in this place, there's a good word of shepherding, a pastor's heart from Paul. Don't be haughty. Don't be haughty. The Jew and all of their religious observance was broken off because of unbelief. Don't be religious. Plug in through belief and through faith. Lord, we just ask for forgiveness for our slothfulness or our laziness or our lukewarmness, our sin, our selfishness that has made just the aroma of the church somewhat rancid, Lord. And Lord, we pray that the incense of our lives, that our lives would be fragrant offerings to you, God. Lord, that if someone were to walk into this church or to stumble across someone in, in the streets and we got to talk with them, Lord, that they would taste of the Lord in these Gentiles and they would just want what we have. We pray that for the Jews that we do come across and we pray that for the Gentiles, Lord. As you say, we're the salt of the earth. God, make us salty so that others would thirst for you. We'll move to the Lord's table this morning and come and remember the, the broken body of Jesus and the blood that he shed for the forgiveness of our sins. We thank him and worship him for his grace. You can come forward and receive the elements and take them to your chair and you can partake whenever you're ready. But as you do, just allow yourself to be cleansed 
today. Allow yourself to be forgiven today. Just get right with the Lord. If there's anything hindering between you and the Lord, or if there's a brother or sister that's offended you in this place, go talk with them and pray and be reconciled. Maybe take communion together and thank the Lord for his blood and his body that forgives and covers a multitude of sins. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.